welcome to worship this morning. It is great to see you at home where you are and visualize you worshiping uh, with us. What a great day as we come into the season of Lent. Pastor Jeff started us off beautifully on Ash Wednesday as we get to this sense of who we are in the sight of God. Recognize our weakness, recognize our frailty, and recognize his peace which comes into our lives. And so we come to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' prayer for us, which we call the Lord's Prayer. We have come to understand it at so many levels, and Jesus wants to reveal this to us. The disciples pleaded with him in Luke's version of this. It's response to a question. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, they had prayed all of their lives, but never the way they had seen Jesus pray. And so he opens up this place for us. To fully understand the Lord's Prayer, we need to see it in, in the larger context, the larger context of the Sermon on the Mount, which follows Jesus beginning his ministry with the baptism, with his temptation in the wilderness, with his calling of the disciples. He sits them down on the mountainside, and he begins to give them a statement of, our character as followers of his, of what our purpose is in this world, of what it means to have proper motives within our hearts as he writes that law on our hearts, and then to live in a world where we give acts of service to our Heavenly Father. And he now says none of that is possible without this relationship which comes only through prayer. Jesus practiced prayer. He modeled it for us and now gives us this prayer. But also the context of this prayer comes in verses 5 through 8 there in chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel. As he introduces the prayer, he says, But when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And then he says to us, when you pray, Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the part of the prayer I want us to look at today. To recognize that we come to our Heavenly Father. Now, there's nobody of all the religions of that day who had a higher ideal of prayer than the Jews. There was a saying by one of their rabbis that was, He who prays within his house surrounds it with a wall that is stronger than iron. Now, certain faults had crept in to their prayer. Not faults of neglect, but faults of misguided devotion. This is where Jesus tells us that our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were doing the, the manual prayer, but it was not coming from the hearts. Prayer had become formalized. They had the Shema, which they said twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. They would say that before their morning prayers and before their evening prayers. It had every chance just to become a vain repetition. Much like the grace we say before a meal or the bedtime prayers we pray with our children. I remember when our, 
our youngest was a toddler and, and he wanted to, to pray like his big sister and big brother. And so we were beginning to teach him the prayers for the meal and the prayer before he went to sleep at night. And so one night he wanted to say the prayer for the meal. And so he bowed his head and began, now I lay me down to sleep. And there was this pause as we're all waiting to see what our toddler theologian was going to do in this prayer that he'd started in the wrong situation. And he looked up and said, oops, and started over. Another time he was praying along and and forgot the term amen. And so he just finished up and said, goodbye. (laughs) We began to learn to pray. And sometimes those prayers that we repeat over and over can just become a repetition. They had what they called the Shemona Ezra, the 18, 18 prayers that they recited three times a day at the hours of prayer. For many, they became only words. There's the same danger for us in repeating the Lord's Prayer, that we wouldn't sense the impact of this prayer that Jesus gives to us. Now, the Jews had prayers for all occasions, for light, for fire, for lightning and rain, for the sight of a new moon, for the sea, for lakes, for rivers, for entering or leaving a city, for receiving good news. And Jewish leaders recognized that there was danger that this would become empty words. And so they said, if a man says his prayers as if just to get through a set task, that is no prayer at all. And so Jesus wanted us to learn to pray from the heart. Not just a pious recital of words that we repeat over and over. The Jews, as I said, had their set hours of prayer. Especially they were connected to the synagogue. We make an error in our prayers if we think church is the only place we pray. Pray without ceasing. We are constantly in this attitude of prayer. They had a tendency among the Pharisees to have these lengthy prayers. And the longer the prayer, the more pious it seems. Even in their introductions, their repetition and flowery uh, address to God. One said, blessed, praised, and glorified, exalted, extolled, and honored, magnified, and lauded be the name of the Holy One. There's another one recorded that had 16 adjectives before they addressed God. They were doing just what Jesus said not to do. They were praying their prayers to be seen by others. And he says they've received their reward in full. They've received the praise of men, but certainly they're not receiving the ear of God. And so the Pharisees, at the hours of prayer, would arrange to be in a crowded place so that people would see their devotion when they stopped to call out their prayers, which they would pray loudly in the position of prayer, and everyone would be able to see them. He reverses that for us. Go into your room, close the door, be alone with God, and offer your prayers up to him. Prayer is probably the most difficult thing we do in our Christian walk. Because we've been programmed to expect results from our actions. But God says we should expect results from him. E.M. Bound says prayer is our work. Everything else is just gathering up the results. To be in touch with God. To be in tune with what he says to us. And to remember that we pray to a God who is a God of love. And he is more anxious to hear and answer than we are to pray. He longs for us to be in this relationship with him. So we'll refer to this prayer as the Lord's Prayer. And really, it is the disciples' prayer. 
we began about four or five months ago in the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, where he prays for himself, for his disciples, and for us as the church who would follow his disciples. This is the prayer that he gives us to pray, and it can be only prayed by a true disciple. Its full meaning can only be understood by someone who's striving to be in relationship with the Father. It begins and ends with praise. There are six six statements here. The first three to God's glory and then to our needs. We recognize that God is giving us a pattern that we are to follow, not just when we recite the Lord's Prayer, but in all of our prayers to begin with praise, with this communion with God, before we bring our list of things that we want to speak to him about. And so to the prayer, we have the context here that they've been praying all their lives. But now Jesus wants to teach them a new method of prayer. A few years ago, I read an article in a major periodical uh, that was on prayer. Well, it attracted my attention because it was a very secular uh, worldly magazine and, and they wanted to talk about prayer. They had noted that people got better markedly when they were ill and had a prayer life. And so they wanted to figure out psychologically what that meant. This is what they came up with. People must have something like prayer because, first of all, there is constant outside pressure on our lives. And secondly, we need this inner composure. However, they said there's no need for any other world emphasis because one is only talking to himself to clarify and compose his mind. And isn't that how unbelievers look to prayer? It's just kind of individual psychology and and self-talk to get us through a situation. It's like the tragedy of being lost in the woods and not having anyone to lead you. You long for someone to be your guide to say, I'm here, don't worry, I will get you through this situation. But they said in this article, man has intellectually convinced himself that he is alone, and so he talks aloud to himself. Well, Jesus points us to a better way. Aren't you thankful? There is a father and he cares. The beauty is that we are not crying out in the darkness to someone that we hope is there. We love because he first loved us. We respond to what he has done in Christ Jesus. I would urge you to get back in the archives of decades ago and Francis Schaeffer's writing for his two classical works, The God Who Is There. And the second one, he is there and he is not silent. God is not only present with us, but he has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. And so by this revelation, he has shown us his face and how we may come to be his children. He came to us in Christ, and so our prayer is Christ-centered. He starts out from his perspective, which is now our perspective, saying, Abba, Father. He invites us to that intimacy with the Father. And so we read, Our Father in Heaven. What a beautiful phrase. And the term Father settles many relationships in our lives. It settles all of our relationships to the unseen worlds. We have one God, not many gods in conflict, which is what the pagan theology of Jesus' day was. All these people with all their mythologies and all their gods. And the Jews say, No, the Lord our God is one. And we recognize God the Father. It settles the relationships to the world that we see. For we know that whatever happens around us, a loving God is in control. And we can trust him. It settles the relationships that we have with each other. 
Because you notice that in the Lord's Prayer, the pronouns are not first person. It is not I and me and mine. It is us and we and our. And so it settles the relationship that we have in the family of God. For we come to Christ together. Even if you are praying this alone in your room, we are there with you. For we are united in Christ Jesus. And we pray it as the church of Christ, as the family of God. And so Jesus came to replace those I, me, and my words with the we and us and our words. And the fatherhood of God follows naturally into the family of Christians. For if God is your father and God is my father, we are brothers and sisters in him. But then this relationship of father also settles the relationship to ourselves. Whenever we're wrestling with our own self-esteem and even come to hate ourselves, we only need to think that we are God's children and he cares for us. We need only look at the cross as we will time after time during this season of Lent to realize that's how much God loves us. That's what he did for this relationship that we can have with him. We are of ultimate value to him. And finally, it settles our relationship to God himself. He is a personal God. Majestic, holy, yes, but approachable as well. One of my favorite photographs from years ago comes from the Oval Office of the President of the United States. John Kennedy was president, time of the Cold War and all kinds of tension. And there's a scene where he's sitting at his desk and papers are strewn everywhere and he's hard at work. But underneath the little cubby hole of the desk is John Jr. as a toddler playing underneath the president's desk. God is almighty, certainly. But we are his children. And we are invited into his presence. Sometimes we think, oh, God is so busy with so many other things. Would he possibly have time for all of my little issues? If it's important to you, it's important to God. He loves us and loves everything about us. And so we rejoice that we come to a father. He is great and mighty, but he is our father. And as a father, he knows us perfectly. Do you see that eighth verse there? Don't be like these others, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows our needs. Even when we don't know what those needs are, he knows them. Sometimes it seems he doesn't answer when he's really answering the real needs. We can rest in his knowledge as the perfect father he cares for us. And the idea of the perfect father is crucial here. I remember some of Martin Luther's writings who had a horrible time with anything that had the word father in it because his own earthly father had been very, very abusive. And we live in a day when there are abusive fathers and absentee fathers and fathers who are harsh to their children and people hear the word father at the start of a prayer. They don't want anything to do with it. But this is our father in heaven. This is the ideal father after which we try to pattern our lives but fall so desperately short. He has so much more for us and knows our needs before we even ask. I might add that he also knows our needs even when they're contrary to what we ask. (laughs) A young child might want ice cream and candy for dinner and all they really need is a good meal. They might not want the medicine when they're sick, but a wise parent knows what to give their child. Beyond what we ask for, he knows what we need. The paralytic asked Jesus to heal him. 
And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. He goes so far beyond what we think we need. E. Stanley Jones said it this way, whenever we insist that God must give us an answer to our prayer, we are off track. The purpose of our prayer is that we get a hold of God, not that we get a hold of the answer. That we are in relationship with him. And so we don't rush into his presence. One of my favorite authors, Calvin Miller, has a great book called The Table of Inwardness, which is about prayer. He talks about a pattern of prayer that he has, of sitting at his desk and entering into prayer and waiting in prayer until he can visualize the face of Christ across the desk from him. Then and only then did he feel ready to enter into prayer, to seek God's face. Over and over in Scripture, we are called to seek his face. We are to seek his face in prayer. We don't seek the hand of God. And so often we come into his presence. We need this. We need this from the hand of God. First, we are called to seek the face of God. That's why we start with our father, Abba, Daddy. We need this relationship. And so we come to him in prayer. Don't rush in with a long list in your prayer life. Settle into his presence. Enjoy who he is. Enter into communion with him. Then there's time for the things we need to ask. We will later in the prayer ask for our daily bread, ask for forgiveness, ask that his will would be done in our lives. But first, we celebrate who he is. He is our father. And we rejoice in him. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. But then the question comes up, if God knows ahead of time what I'm going to pray, why do we pray? I remember as a young boy struggling with this. As a new Christian. If God is an all-knowing God. And he knows what I need. And he knows what's going to happen. Then why pray? I'll just let him carry the ball. And I'll be a spectator. But then I realize the simplicity. Of the proper response to that attitude. The answer is not. What I ask for. But that I ask. That I enter into this relationship with him. And God, the creator of all the universe, welcomes me into this personal relationship with him. Daddy. Father. He welcomes us into his presence. It sounds too simple until we realize that the object of prayer is that relationship. Not some desires that are going to be either fulfilled or denied. But the object is to enter into communion with God. To share his presence. And if I do nothing else but say from the bottom of my heart, our Father, the most important part of prayer has already happened. We have entered into communion with our Creator. And we're going to talk about all the things that happen after that, but this is certainly the place to begin as we enter into this season of Lent. As we humble ourselves in prayer and fasting, as we bow before him, as we recognize his marvelous presence. And some will say, okay, well, personal relationship is what's important. Well, I can have that without prayer. See, God and I have this understanding. <laughs> what if I said that about my marriage? No, there's no need to talk, no need to communicate. We have an understanding. Well, pretty soon we wouldn't have a relationship at all. And if I'm not in constant communion with the Father, I lose touch of that relationship which is primary in my life. And if that which is primary falls apart, then everything secondary falls apart as well. Seek first 
his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will find their place. Well, it's the same with God. The relationship depends upon communication. God says, seek my face, and we seek him. God says, cast your cares upon me. We cast those cares always in prayer. God says, knock and it will be opened, and we keep knocking. He says, ask and you will receive, and we keep asking. He welcomes us into prayer. And so only as we come before him in prayer do we receive this fellowship. And when we come to prayer in this way, we find this pathway to unique fellowship. I can accept everything from his hand, and I can accept everything, good, bad, or anything in between, Because the Father is my friend. And whatever comes, he is there with me. He will lead me. He will guide me. And when we cease talking with God, fellowship dies. And then we're simply talking about God. And God help us. If we gather like this in worship, and we're just talking about God instead of talking to God. But we are in relationship with the one who gives us his word and his truth and his spirit. And the simplest, sincere prayer from the heart is more meaningful than all of the impersonal philosophy about God. And so we enter into this fellowship with God through prayer and we say, Our Father. But it's easy to steal the true meaning of the words, Our Father, if we leave it there. Oh yes, our Father, He loves us and He's a great loving God and He's a great forgiving God and we will just kind of... Live the way we want to. But you see the danger there. It opens up the door for license and loose conduct without thought for God's justice. And so the phrase Jesus gives us is our Father in heaven. So along with the love of the Father relationship is the splendor, the justice, the holiness of God in heaven. He frees us from an earthbound viewpoint and presents our Savior as the God of the universe. Now, I'm past the stage where my grandkids are moving from crawling, but I remember that stage. When they're crawling, everything they see is the floor. And boy, you better keep that floor clean because everything that crawling baby sees will go right into their mouth. That's their view, is the floor. But when they become toddlers, their viewpoint changes. Now you have to clear all the shelves and kid-proof the house because their viewpoint has changed. And if we have an earthbound viewpoint where we're just crawling around and doing earthly things and don't have a heavenly perspective, we are like that child that has not yet begun to look up. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. We recognize that God wants us to be in relationship with him and not have that earthbound viewpoints. Spiritually, we need that heavenly look. It not only changes our viewpoint toward God, but the level of our own living. Trivial things so often can, can just tyrannize our lives. Something as small and insignificant as that penny. If I get that little insignificant penny close enough, that's all I can see. I can't see anything else. But if that's cast aside, it's almost too small to even see. What was it that was tyrannizing my life that seemed so important? 
God wants to give us a bigger perspective and take those things away. And so it's not just coming into his presence with all the troubles that are, that are blinding us to his presence. But come in and recognize that he is with us, that he lives within us by his spirit. And so when we are living the Lord's Prayer, we are taken from the realm of the trivial and lifted to this plane of reverence that says, Our Father in heaven, to recognize not only his love, but also his holiness. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Remember when I was in seminary a long time ago, Mendel Taylor said his granddaughter's pronunciation of the prayer was interesting, but pretty powerful. The way she prayed it was, Our Father in heaven, how loaded be thy name. And it is loaded, isn't it? With power, with authority, with glory, with grace. God's name. Remember back in John 17 where Jesus was talking to the disciples, I have given them your name. That is your nature. Name for us is just a label that we go by. But in the Bible, it's the very nature, the very personality, the very essence of who God is. His name is holy. And so we hold God in reverence. We must know who he is and who we are. For we pray that his name would be hallowed before we pray that his kingdom would come. Before we pray for daily bread. Before we pray for forgiveness. That God would be lifted up as holy in our sight. It does not mean I will live my life and you'll put your stamp of approval on it. It means you alone are holy and I will live within your will. And so the primary consideration of our life is our relationship with God. That relationship is the source of our life. In the exposure to that source of life, we also live. And so we must accept his holiness as a standard for our lives. Now, in our world, people don't want to accept absolute standards or morals. Situational ethics seems to be what rules our society. Now, in other areas of life, we accept absolute standards. In legal matters, there are absolute standards. In games that we play, there are absolute standards. From the simplest childhood game to professional athletes, there are rules by which the games are played. And we understand those rules and the game will be played within those parameters. We recognize that there are absolutes. Well, there are biblical absolutes. There are spiritual absolutes. And God, as our holy, heavenly Father, is one of those absolutes that we must receive. To do that, first of all, we must believe that he exists. Hear what it says in Hebrews. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We recognize who God is, starting with his basic existence. Now, the Bible never argues the existence of God. It starts from the fact of God. Or they didn't feel the need to prove something that they experienced every day. Listen to the, the verses at the end of chapter 1 of Romans. He says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because he has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse. He says, look around at creation. You want evidence of who I am? Here it is. Look at this world. This is a, uh, may have to introduce this to some young people. 
This is a wristwatch. We don't wear them anymore. Uh, oh, some people wear, you know, computers on their wrists that tell them everything from how many steps they took that day to where, what the high tide is and what's going on with the weather and everything. This just tells time. You even wind it up with a little stem. doesn't take a battery. And Paley, he gave his argument about God's existence using an illustration of a watch. He said, if someone finds a watch who has never seen one before and opens up the back of that watch and sees all of the springs and cogs and wheels that make that thing work, no one would ever say, oh, look, this all came together by chance from all the ends of the universe. All these little metallic pieces came together and this is what came out. No. He would say, somebody made this. And so, order presupposes mind. If there is an orderly world, there is an orderly God who created that world. If I am the crown of that creation, there is a loving God who created me. And it's not just the chance that so many people have tried to talk themselves into. Back to Romans chapter 1. It's been plain by what God has made. And so the order of our world points to a creator. Immanuel Kant said, The moral law within us and the starry heavens above us drive us back to God. We must know what kind of God we serve. He's a God of love. He is a God of justice. And he's a God of holiness. And if I take any one of those on their own, I get a misrepresentation of who God is. If it's just a God of love, it can just turn into sloppy sentimentalism and everything is fine with the world. If he is just a God of justice, it can be a harsh legalism. And that's where the Pharisees were living. If he's just a God of holiness, he would be aloof and distant. But he has come among us in Jesus Christ. He's a God of love and justice and holiness. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We must be constantly aware of God. Not just an occasional awareness, just, not just a reminder when we happen to come to church. Not just in certain times and places. But the word says, pray without ceasing. I've listed six different scriptures there that I won't read to you now, but each one of them says basically the same thing. Keep on praying. As natural as breathing is this prayer. This awareness of God. The prayer to glorify him, the prayer for help, the prayer for each day, the prayer of thanksgiving, all these things pray without ceasing. And we must be obedient and submissive to him. Romans 12, 2 says this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove then the will of God. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God has that good, pleasing, and perfect will for us. We will seek it throughout this Lenten season. We will seek it in the lines of the Lord's Prayer. We will seek it as we pray daily. We will seek His face and recognize His will in our lives. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, the prayer begins. Be at rest in God's holy presence. Father, we come before you this first Sunday of Lent and recognize that you have so much to teach us. 
Teach us something new. We want to open our minds to what you have to say to us. We want to seek your face and see you in ways that perhaps we've never seen before. Challenge us to realize we always have something to learn. Help us to know you more deeply. And as we go through this season of Lent, may each day be a sacred journey. As we journey toward the cross and recognition of what was achieved for us in your sacrifice, may we see you in your fullness. We promise we will seek your face day after day after day as we walk to the cross, as we walk toward Easter, as we see your love. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Great to see you on this Lenten season. Have a great week in the Lord. Thank you.